Welcome to Something Came From Baltimore. My name is Tom Gowker, and we are dusting off a classic Jazz 101 episode from WEAA-FM at Morgan State Radio. In fact, my guest in this episode is none other than DJ Robert Shahid, who is a super fan of James Brown. The topic for the show is James Brown and Jazz. Warning, this is an early Jazz 101 episode. It's entertaining, and I do like it, but the production is early, early editing, even when we recorded the interview live to tape. So let's get to it. It's Jazz and James Brown on Something Came From Baltimore, the show. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to start by saying this is James Brown. And uh, this is a kind of a new thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be formal. I'm going to be real down to earth and soulful. See, I've never cut a jazz tune before. And the fellas, the same band that cut Thank and Try Me and all other things. We're going to cut this thing. We call it the Thing in G. Because, you see, we're not jazz cats. We're just starting. So we'll start by kicking it off. Welcome to another episode of Jazz 101. My name is Tom Gowker, and I'll be your host for the evening. Jazz 101 is a show that makes jazz fun again. Tonight we're going to have fun because the topic is James Brown and jazz. Tonight we have Robert Shaheed, accomplished drummer, morning host of the WEAA FM's Brew Crew. And what I'm talking about is the station that you're listening to right now, 88.9 FM. Robert Shahid is James Brown's super fan. He's all-knowing and on the point when it comes to JB. And is that a good uh, suggestion to say about you? Well, I don't know, but I will tell you what. I don't know about the all-knowing part, but I have been a fan ever since I first heard him perform live in Philadelphia. And I think I hadn't missed a show since... I've seen over 90 James Brown shows at various areas of the country. So that does make me a super fan, doesn't it? Uh, I think so. And and you know what? I don't want to um, throw age in or whatever, but uh, I'm... Why not? I, I'm at a... Okay. Okay, good. Uh, I'm a person who um, learned about James Brown. Uh, I went backwards and started picking up his his work, and uh, you had lived through it. And, and that's the part where I think it's... Uh, when you gave me some of these tracks to listen to about James Brown and jazz, uh, this is where I basically said, mm, he has he has multiple streams of of work, what he was doing. He was doing pop music, R&B, R&B music, he was doing um, crooner music, like he was the, the, the black Frank Sinatra, he was doing jazz music, and that's, and that's kind of how I looked at him. Um, I think Motown would go ahead and have different artists do variations of, of um, the same song in the different styles of their genres that they mm-hmm, work. Mm-hmm. But I think when James Brown, he's like, I'll just do it myself. Because he was the hardest working man. I think when we get down to the last album that you told me to, to look at, it was from 1970, and I think it was like some 36 CD or album release. So, I mean, that is hard working. He's putting out four or five That's a lot of things. He just goes right into the studio and just records. I don't care. He's feeling something and he does it. The first album is, album that you talked about is a Prisoner of Love, which it came out in 1963. And um, to me, that was his breakthrough album. I, I'm, not, I'm right by saying that because he had the Try Me and Bewildered on it. And Am I right by saying that? His well, breakout album? I think you're right. Everybody has a certain viewpoint of James Brown. James Brown wanted to be so many things at one time. He had a tremendous live show, 
but he also wanted to be a lounge act too. And Prisoner of Love with the background singers was a CD that came out where he was uh, attempting to broaden his scope into the, the broader audience. But he was already there. He just didn't, you know, didn't, he was just continuously making that effort. And that tune that I think you're going to play is that rare one. You can describe it. Well, uh, the this is Robert. You picked this one out. It's called The Thing in G, and uh, it's basically his, his first uh, foray into jazz. But just before we even get into that, so what happened before then? So we're talking about 19, we're doing a timeline of James Brown. Was he doing more doo trying to get more popular? Well, if you, you take it, it was 63. 63 is a banner year for James Brown for two ways. First of all, Prisoner of Love uh, was recorded but hadn't been issued. The first issue of that year was him recorded live at the Apollo, which became the all-time biggest-selling live recording. It was a show that took place in 1962 in October. And so Prisoner of Love came out after that one, and but it was recorded before that show. And it was delayed because that live album became such a phenomenon on airplay. But James Brown still wanted to broaden his appeal to the broader audience. So Prisoner of Love took on a whole different thing and just showed how how broad his musical spectrum of abilities were. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this is not a normal pop album. I mean, it did have Try Me and Bewilder, which is like top 40 popular songs. But the thing in G, we're going to play it right now. Um, it's off the charts. It's completely different it is, it is really. than uh, that you would hear on an, a normal pop record. listening to a thing in G and I am not considering myself um, completely a um, jazz knowledge but are they in G? Do you know that? <laughs> they are in G because that's <laughs> one of the few keys that James Brown could play that Hammond B3 organ in so if you notice through his career most of his tunes playing organ were in G and most of his singing tunes were in D it's an amazing thing and, and if you notice on there he's got various very good soloists on there the trumpeter Leo Raspberry who went on later to be one of the primary trumpeters in the Count Basie Orchestra. And Les Bowie on guitar was a long James Brown. Uh, uh, his band was always excellent musicians, and, um, and that's what he prided himself on. But we're going to get right to the next one, which is uh, the Showtime album, uh, Caledonia, which is a Louis Jordan song. I think it's great, but I, I like the original version, the, the James Brown version. Uh, for some reason, there's a, a fake live audience on this one. When I listened to it, I, I, it was really loud and really kind of obnoxious. But the whole album has that live audience. It does, it does. And later on, they did issue one without the live. It wasn't Jay, It was some of the producers over at the Smash Mercury recording label that actually insisted on putting the live audience in there. 
simply because they recognized that the Live at the Apollo had such a big selling that they wanted this to appear like it was a live show, when in reality it was actually a studio recording. I think the, uh, uh, the, the audience, the loud audience that you talked about, actually did detract from the excellence of this of this CD. I don't want to add any more, but I will tell you what, this is the first time that James Brown recorded an album only using two members of his own band. He used the, the uh, performance from uh, the big band arranged by uh, Tommy Lowe, I think the name of it is, with, um, oh man, I wish I could tell you, my, my old memory is escaping me, a great drummer, Panama Francis, playing drums on this one. And it's such an outstanding album, even though the crowd detracts from the quality. My take is, okay, so we got Prisoner of Love, 1963. We got, that's his seventh album. And then you have um, Showtime, which is his eighth album that was just released in April. And this is the first single, and I think it's a risk. Like, now that you look back at stuff, who am I to judge? I mean, uh, James Brown is like a, a, a superstar. But I didn't, I didn't think it was, like, the right song to play after a mammoth album. But maybe it was a, like it was a James Brown wave at that point. He could do no wrong. I don't. I don't know if this was a super successful it, song. It, it actually wasn't. It wasn't played that much. But it was released because at that time James Brown had, uh, because he didn't get with the kind of money he wanted from King Records. He actually uh, was recording on the Smash label in order to make King pressure them to do a better deal for him. And so these were released to try to teach King a lesson. And, of course, he got into a big legal dispute about that and eventually returned back to King, where he recorded for his first release. When he returned, Papa's got a brand new bag. Okay, he turned it on. I, I, I just love the fact that he was giving tribute to his Louis Jordan, uh, a guy who, who he wanted so much to be like at that particular time. But he can't do it without adding that trademark James Brown scream. And, I mean, it's the entertaining in, in him. And I love the, the way his voice sounds in that era. Later in the later part of his life, because he had had so many screams in his show, that his voice actually dropped four different octaves during that time. And the tunes just don't sound the same. But this is, to me, classic James Brown performing, loving the artists, the people he admired, that scream that he had borrowed from Little Richard early in his career. You know, he used to tour imitating and then replacing Jim, Little Richard on gigs. Oh, really? Because in those days, there wasn't TV and there wasn't a lot of video, so the people didn't know whether they were seeing Little Richard or not. So they'd uh -huh. advertise, and Little Richard would cancel the gig, and James Brown would pick up it with and without permission sometimes and show up on stage and turn it out with that classic screen imitating Little Richard. So this scream is really unique to James Brown, and I love the way he interpreted that Louis Jordan tune, Caldone.
Welcome back to Jazz 101. I'm your host, Tom Gowker, and tonight we have the pleasure to speak with James Brown superfan, Robert Shaheed. He is a great drummer in his own right, and you know him as the voice of the brew crew here at WEAA. Uh, thank you for so much for sitting down with me to review these records. But uh, well, this is the album cover where uh, he is sitting down by the piano, and to me, this is a full jazz album. It, it absolutely is. This album is entitled Grits and Soul, but uh, this album was, was after he was impressed with Jimmy Smith. One of the tunes on this album is his tribute to Jimmy Smith doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It's an organ tune, but the tune that, uh, that Tom has just queued up is a tune where James Brown is playing the piano now instead of the having B3. It's called There, and it actually is a great piano tune featuring James Brown. It happens to also be the very first recorded tenor saxophone solo of Maceo Parker, who later switched to alto. All that is in this tune. It's a really great, great tune. Okay, so here we go. We, we have Showtime on... Uh, we're just giving a timeline. So you have Prisoner of Love, phenomenal album, um, September 63. You got Showtime, which came out in April 64. Grits and Soul comes out 64. Um, so this is his uh, ninth album. And what label are we on? Is he still angry? What's going on? Well, this happened. He's still in the negotiations with King. So this is on the Smash label, too. Uh-huh. And in the middle of the negotiations, they told him, okay, you can continue to record on the Smash label, but no vocals. Wow. Only and instrumentals. What, and that's what this album so is. So he's got two Smash albums. This is the first one, and there's a second one after that to come out with strictly instrumentals, and they made pretty good sales. up to the next one, which is James Brown playing James Brown. How cool is that? Um, this is um, um, Lee Morgan's uh, Sidewinder. Sidewinder was a big hit in the jazz world. James Brown, we already heard him playing Hammond B3. We heard him playing piano. On this one, he's playing drums, and he's a left-handed drummer. Okay. And you'll hear the unique way he plays drums on Lee Morgan's Sidewinder. On this. You know, uh, I, I don't know if I love it yet or not. But I love the album. I think that the album is, there's a lot of stuff going on there. You're absolutely right. It's an interesting album. He does Song for My Father on this album. He does Every Beat of My Heart on organ. It's such a beautiful arrangement. Uh, Try Me was the biggest seller on this album, where he plays on organ rather than singing. Yeah. And he did that tune on Dick Clark. And of course, as James Brown's is a masterful improvisational artist, he couldn't play it exactly. You know, they lip sync on these things. So yeah. can you imagine playing organ with the with the record? You watch his hands; they weren't hitting the same notes as the. But James Brown was being James Brown, and on drums, it's a phenomenal thing. I caught him live playing drums on this very same tune, and it's an amazing thing to watch this left-handed drummer do this thing uh, on a right-handed drum set. Yeah, James Brown, he did it all. He did it his way, as uh, Sammy, oh, yeah. Sammy Davis <laughs> would say. 
And uh, and uh, because everything in his live show was so fascinating. And you mentioned kids. I mean, if you go to a James Brown show, first of all, you have to remember that when the shows of those days, there were like four of them a day. So it was a lot to be included. And we used to buy tickets for the for the noon show and stay until the midnight show. That means you got to see like four, five James Brown shows. And the fascinating thing about it, they had so much material as we were sharing some of the jazz stuff that you didn't, you didn't hear before. There was so much material that no one show was the same. Every show was different. Every show was exciting. And you see every age group there, from kids to the elderly, all of them had something that they could enjoy in a James Brown show, which also included comedians and dancers and, and all of the things that you would find in a big show. It was just a big entertainment package. And it needs, the, and also he's such a character. He's absolutely such a character, and and I'm I'm appreciative very much of you, Tom, because there's so much about James Brown that has not been shared. And as we go further and further into the present and into the future, there are a lot of rap artists who have sampled his music. His music is probably one of the most sampled, but it's unfortunate that most of the things that are sampled and shared these days are representative of the funk James Brown forward as opposed to where we're going now, the jazz James Brown, the soul James Brown, the Mr. Dynamite, the uh, blues James Brown. James Brown, just almost like Miles Davis, he transformed. He didn't stay in one place. And uh, the only thing I think stayed the same in his live shows was the please, 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 which was really representative of him saying to the audience, hey, I'm James Brown. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to leave the stage. I'm going to keep coming back like a rising phoenix, you know. And that's what he did in his please, please act. He always got back up and came back out and did his thing. And and, uh, what you're sharing is a part of the James Brown experience that unfortunately is not shared enough. Yeah, the total eye-opener, and I'm a big fan. So... Uh, you know, I, I can't say I'm a big fan anymore because I, this is like this is a rediscovery and this is pretty pretty amazing stuff. This become his 15th album. That's right. So and it's the last of the uh, smash recordings for him. He was an admirer of another organist. He married Jimmy Smith, but he also admired Jimmy McGriff. Okay. And Jimmy McGriff, the year earlier, came out with the same song, All About My Girl. And James Brown said, I can play that on the Hammond B3 test this good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Philly guy. And Jimmy McGriff. Philly? That's right. Okay. You're okay. exactly right. Gotcha. So uh, it says, plays the new breed, the Boogaloo. And that's in parentheses. So, I'm not sure what the Boogaloo is. James Brown had a new dance called the Boogaloo, and the New Breed Boogaloo was one of his top, it replaced Night Train as a closing tune that he did. And uh, they played New Breed Boogaloo, it was a kind of a lesser, fast-paced tune, and he had a new dance called the Boogaloo that he did, that he did on the on the Phil Donahue show and it became very popular they turn on the strobe lights and James Brown would look like he was upside down and they go off the stage with a new green book wow wow okay well that's something that you need to check out about the girl it's a Jimmy McGriff song uh, it's on vinyl so you're gonna hear some, um, some some scratches and all that good stuff so here we go
the day my life was filled with the rain. Oh, baby. Sunny. Did not do well. Uh, it came out in 1969, but I think the recordings were before. Um, totally horrible album cover. Really, but, wasn't it though? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really explain to anyone what kind of music that you're going to hear. But you know, I wrote in here that you know, one, I love it, and I think that it's it's James Brown just doing a twist on every kind of standard possible. Willow Week for me uh, is awesome. Uh, that's life. Uh, I, I think that if it's you, magic. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're a, a casual James Brown fan, this is an album that, and if you like standards or if you just like to chill out, uh, he has uh, this album kind of puts you in a in a different space, and it's not James Brown; it's something it's something else going on. It's totally something else. James Brown he used to like to leave his show and go out and hear some music. He happened to walk into one of the clubs, I think it was Chicago, but I'm not sure. And the trio was playing, the DeFelice trio was playing on the stage, and James Brown was in the audience, and he said, can I come up and do it too? And he went up and he did, I think he did uh, It's Magic or something like that, and they hit it off so well together, not in performing styles, but because it was a jazzy tune, and so he said, I'm going to take you guys in the studio and do a jazz. Wow. And the rest is history. You know, it's, it's, so the timeline is, okay, uh, the place of New Breed was 15. Uh, three years later, it's 28. Mm. This is the 28th recording of James Brown. <laughs> and this was a unique time in James Brown's career. His doctors were telling him after doing over 300-something shows per year that he had to slow down. His knees were bothering him. He's getting water on his knees from dropping to his knees. And he said, listen, man, you ought to convert your stage show into a lounge act, man, because you're, you're working too hard. And so this was one of his efforts to try to see if he could throw it out there. But he couldn't do it. He had to get back into those flaming Mr. Dynamite, hardest working man in show business kind of shows. And although this is a great effort, and he probably could have made himself into a lounge act, it's not just exactly what he wanted to do. But no. it's a period in this time. No, but it just was, it seems so easy. Uh, we're looking at uh, 1970 at this point. Now he's at 32 albums, um, an Oliver Nelson arrangement. Uh, the Salt on Top album. It was issued, uh, reissued, and it's new to me in 2004. And I really am a big just Oliver Nelson fan. So I can hear his sound. It sounds so lush and so um, it, it, non-intrusive. Like it, it, it's kind of um, dramatic, but not dramatic, if that, if that makes sense. But because I, Oliver Nelson, one of the best arrangers of our time. Yeah. Really and uh, it's unfortunate that he just died young. Yeah, yeah. He, he could have uh, continued uh, and be our, our Quincy Jones. But, um, yeah, it, it's a really good album. It got reissued. And uh, the song is That's My Desire. I want to dance till the break of day. That's my desire. 
what was the what was special about that? Well, it was special because that's a great showtime tune. It was not showtime as in the album, but a great show tune. And James Brown was displaying his vocal dexterity in that he could do anything, not just screaming and, and doing live shows, but he could do the jazz and the lounge tunes too. And I think he demonstrated his versatility really well on this. And, um, and, and along with that lush arrangement of, uh, of Oliver Nelson, it's really a classic tune. Yeah, I, I feel that this whole album, I'm glad that they reissued this one. This is what's so confusing about the legacy of James Brown is, okay, this is a great album, but there's a lot of other great albums there, too. Um, I think this was popular at the time, and it wasn't, it, again, it wasn't in tune with the, the funky stuff that he was doing. Right, exactly. So I guess they felt, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to put that one back out again, whereas all these other ones that were in parallel with his career are still sitting on the shelf without the reissues and without the, the cleanup. Um, I thought it was great. I, I didn't know. Like, I thought this was a rarity that this album came out uh, in his career. Like, oh, this must be his only kind of jazzy album, period. But that's not true. Um, uh, I think it's a great album. If, if anyone has an opportunity, check that one out also. Um, and I think that we've learned a lot today is that, that James Brown... Just is if you if you want to dip in the the, the hot tub with James Brown, <laughs> he's the hot there, tub. <laughs> there's there's more there's more going on there. There's a say in the hot tub, but realize that that there he had he created a suit filled with uh, different styles and uh, he's influenced so many people and I think so many genres that uh, it's it's just assumed that that this is you're influenced by James Brown. It's not like oh I'm a James Brown fan. It's like no he has he has done this. So it's it's important to so people realize that. Just so much stuff. It's really important to go back, fight for these reissues, fight for... Mm-hmm. Um, do some research. Yeah, do some research because, um, you know, he does have a checkered past as uh, as a character. And if you focus on that, you just really kind of focus on the you'll wrong miss thing. The, you'll miss out on a lot. And I want to thank you so much, Tom, for allowing me to share some of the stories about James Brown. There's so much out there. There are books out by his daughter that you probably haven't had a chance to read. Macy L. Parker has a book out about James Brown. Fred Wesley has a book out called Hit Me Fred that really describes what it's like being with James Brown. And there's about four other James Brown books out, including the latest by Jake, James McBride, which really covers the charitable side of James Brown. Yeah. And um, that's... Um all of them are, I'm sure, juicy because the, yeah, you know you have a t- yeah you have a, you have a topic like James Brown. You're like, okay, you can go in so many levels like we just did today. Robert Shaheed, it's a pleasure speaking with you tonight. And um, this is Jazz 101. I'm Tom Gowker. If you like this show, please contact WEAA and tell them that you love it. Till the next time, let's make jazz fun again. Me here to weep my tears into the stream.
I hope you enjoyed the James Brown interview with Robert Shahid. I learned something on this one. Uh, I am asking you to help me spread the word about the podcast. Just flip the show or the podcast to five friends who, who might like this podcast. We are independent and have to be word of mouth to expand the reach of the show. Thank you for being a part of that Be More Music scene.